The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Swedish-British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroth-Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, welcome to today's show. Uh, just a quick reminder of what's going on in London with the Julian Assange case on the 20th and 21st of February. He'll be at the Royal Courts of Justice uh, for an extradition hearing to see whether he will be uh, moved to the United States and spend perhaps much of the rest of his life in a dungeon somewhere for violating... Uh, for exposing U.S. secrets. Now, TNT, of course, will be covering this as a great friend of freedom and of Assange and of the free press. And we will be on site and around London on the day. So make sure to tune in in your virtual dial and uh, watch us on that day. Now, associated with Assange is, of course, um, Sweden, which um, is the topic of today's uh, news monologue. And that is the fact that um, Sweden has just announced that it's closed down its um, inquiry into the Nord Stream explosion without much to say. I think there was two two paragraphs from the Swedish authorities saying that they were passing on the information to Denmark and Germany, which are carrying out similar inquiries, but which I don't expect much from. Um, it's uh, the Swedish media so far have uh, have not covered it at all or just covered the official announcement. So uh, although Julian Assange made uh, much fuss, or at least his friends did, uh, in trying to entice Julian Assange to Sweden back in those fateful days of 2010, because Assange had been told that uh, Sweden had the freest press environment in the world and it was a great place to set up uh, WikiLeaks at, uh, I don't think that uh, he was very well informed on that uh, score. I think that... Uh, what happened, of course, was that um, he made a, a, a presentation and all was good. He went for a crayfish party, as we remember. And then, of course, uh, he was accused of rape, my personal opinion, having studied quite a lot, but then kind of given up because we'll never get clarity just by seeing what's been published. Is it, well, he was done in by a honey trap, probably uh, some woman uh, connected to Swedish intelligence, and that was on orders from uh, London and Washington. And, of course, that government was very pro-NATO, and uh, the prime, the foreign minister in charge then was a guy called Carl Bildt, and uh, my research into the British archives from the 1980s shows that he was also, he was very close to the British already then. And of course, his uh, lifelong dream came true uh, when Sweden joined NATO, All the final details have not yet been hammered out because of a Hungarian holdout, which we'll be discussing with our first guest. Anyway, um, the, the Swedes having not concluded that uh, the uh, North Stream uh, inquiry led to any any revelations, it's still interesting that they did not criticize the Russians or give them a kick in the shins, which is uh, commonplace in these sorts of things. They didn't mention them at all. So maybe if uh, I don't think that their silence on the matter is out of respect uh, for the Russians, I think if they had been involved, uh, they would have said so or at least done something. I think rather it's because of then a new NATO allies were involved, uh, UK and US. I think um, just on this on a Nord Stream note, I think that uh, there was a new Substack post. Uh, Substack is this sort of free speech platform by uh, one of the world's most famous journalists, Seymour Hirsch, 
who's an old investigative journalist hand who's been around since the Vietnam War and has got very good sources in the CIA and who's maintained through his sources that the CIA carried it out with the help of the Norwegians. Um, and he has some information to add, which was that the CIA were ready to go just before the uh, Ukrainian invasion in February 2022, but Biden put them off and said no. And then the green light came some months later in September 22. My personal view, again, it's my only opinion, is that um, I think that, that the CIA or his old friends there are feeding um, uh, Seymour Hersh a line, which they want out. And it might be contain some truth, but it's not the entire truth. I think that um, uh, I certainly don't believe in the in the story put out by the Germans, German compliant German media, that it was some kind of Ukrainian shady outfit on a on a on a yacht sailing yacht uh, somewhere i think that's that's just a, a smoke screen or sand in our eyes i think the more trails the more the merrier as it were when you're carrying out disinformation but i don't think i'm not quite entirely convinced by the hirsch story either uh i'm i'm sorry if i sound monomaniacal about about this but i think that there's some blogs that suggest it might have been the british because they take great pride in in their maritime capabilities especially related to special forces and special boat service and divers and so on and they were the more aggressive side and they may have pushed for it whereas biden was backing off anyway we might never get clarity on this issue but what worries me is that the swedish uh swedes not, not surprisingly backing off from this might give support to those forces in the UK and US and elsewhere that see uh, possibly further covert operations, uh, false flag operations, or some kind of uh, high profile action, which will pitch us all into a terrible war, having destroyed uh, Germany's industrial capability. And of course, any diplomatic relationship between Germany and, and uh, Russia, this is something of which they're well capable. And uh, forgive me for sounding paranoid, but we've got to sound these warnings. If I cry wolf, then so be it. Uh, we have to be prepared when these things happen. Anyway, uh, we'll have, uh, after a quick break, we'll have Basil Valentine with the news. This is TNT Radio News Talk. Thank you. The facts, no spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies. We need the facts. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Back to the news. What, what what is going on today, Basil? What have you got for us? Uh, well, an enormous amount of news, isn't there, at the moment, Pele? The world never stops turning. Um, as you know, I've no doubt Tucker Carlson is in uh, Russia, where he's just interviewed Vladimir Putin, much to the irritation of Western commentators and politicians, some of whom mm. have gone as far as to say that uh, he should be barred from travelling to Europe as a result. Guy Verhofstadt, yeah. the former Belgian Prime Minister, saying that uh, he should, uh, you know, face sanctions. Absolutely mm. extraordinary. Um, and uh, at the same time, though, the Russians have barred this candidate from standing in the uh, election because they say he hasn't uh, got enough signatures needs 100,000 mm. signatures to be eligible to stand for the presidency, and he got 95,587. Boris Nadezhdin. I don't know anything about him, Pele, but you're a lot closer to Russia than we are. Can you tell us anything about well, Boris Nadezhdin? Is he a Western I, I, stooge? He could be. I mean, but the thing is, I mean, my, my general view about... Um, uh, 
I'll, I'll, I'll make a general point about my my coverage of Russia and so on. Just because the uh, what we read in the Western media about Russia is uh, very propagandistic, and the West maybe che- che- steals its own elections and things like that, and starts all these provocations and false flags. All that might be is entirely compatible with the fact that the Russians don't might not run their elections perfectly. I mean, yes. I think there's a psychological need for us as a human that when once we we see wrong done, someone's been wrong, we assume they're innocent, you know, I mean, and, and we see this journalist who cover sort of, um, I don't know, true crime stories and find a guy's innocent. And they, they, they promote that line and they find that he's not as innocent as they once thought, you know, but the two facts are entirely consistent. The Russian regime can carry out assassinations. I think all countries do, all, all the big powers do. It's just that we don't hear about the Western ones. So the people who watch the Western corporate media only get a one-sided view of things. It could be everyone steals elections these days. Um, I, I just want to, I think um, what strikes me about that, I don't know anything about him. I think that um, he could be a genuine anti-war candidate that threatens the Kremlin. Could be. It could be that he was a, a sort of guy that they, the, the, Amer- the Americans and the British had kind of inserted into the debate. And they have some as yet unknown sort of means of prevailing and and the the Russians are essentially defensive and it was justified. It doesn't have to be Putin doing it because what thought, what I thought is that, I mean, the, this famous interview that with Tucker Carlson, I think it took place two days ago, maybe. And apparently according to Twitter, there are photographs of Tucker Carlson leaving uh, Moscow. I mean, he's in Belgrade, which has this air connection to Moscow and he's probably back in the United States. He's probably, I mean, throwing his hands up in despair when he gets that news because it makes uh, Tucker look like a complete dupe. I mean, you know, like a useful idiot goes to Russia, you know, says, well, we, you're misunderstood and so on. And then the Russians approve all the neocons and and sort of, you know, all the Lin- Liz Trusses of this world. You know, they're sitting there saying we've got to form an alliance for democracies against authoritarianism. And a lot of a lot of people who have been following our channel and Fox News and a lot of other channels say, well, yeah, you know, pull the other one. US has stolen elections. Uh, we we uh, we have propagandistic media in line with Pravda sort of thing about the COVID crisis and so on. So you've got an opinion that's rather against our elites. And suddenly the list trusses of this world can say, well, look, we really are the Democrats against the authoritarians because the Russians are not, can't even have an election, which Putin was bound to win anyway. And they can't, they can't allow any opposition whatsoever. Not even this guy who is a kind of genuine anti-war candidate. So it's certainly bad for Tucker Carlson. And he was going to get it 150 million views maybe for his interview with Putin tonight. It's going to be aired tonight. And it's in a way it's, it looks bad for Putin, of course. So it might either, it might be people behind Putin, hardliners or whatever. We don't know who, who the losers from this are Putin and Tucker Carlson. So it could be people who want to harm those two, two guys who are going to be the focus of Twitter's attention this evening. And, and Tucker Carlson with this interview is going to get far more views than cable, uh, other cable channels will ever get or the, or the BBC or anything. So I, I see it in the, in the light of that. Tucker's gone home now. He can't ask Putin that tough question because he surely, he surely would have done. Why can't you allow this guy to stand an election? And now Tucker Carlson's interview is already old as it were. It's already you know, he, he can't do anything about it because he's back in, in Washington editing his film, editing his interviews, and he's kicking himself. I'm 100% sure of that. Anyway, what do, well, tell me what you thought about it. What's your take on it? Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right about a 
psychological need to have a good guy in any adversarial situation yeah. um you know we we know that we're not the good guys well at least you and i do pelly and uh we hope the majority of our viewers and listeners um therefore uh the default position is that the russians must be the good guys but they're not necessarily um of course not yeah we don't really know uh you know speaking personally i don't really know uh enough about them to say whether they're the good guys or not but it, it's perfectly possible to have two bad guys in absolutely. a conflict absolutely um, now as i say the russians say that uh Nadezhdin simply failed to garner sufficient support to be permitted onto the ballot i mean yeah. here in britain you uh you need to be nominated to stand for parliament you have to raise money to pay for your deposit you haven't got the money mm. you can't stand for parliament it's as mm. simple as that so every country has election rules and if he fa failed to meet the criteria then that's an open and shut case and shouldn't really affect tucker's interview with putin which i think is sort of perhaps a bit bigger than this story um yeah uh Nazdezhin, for his part says that no one has any doubt that hundreds of thousands of people signed for me hundreds of thousands mm. so he's suggesting that he collected far more signatures than the hundred thousand benchmark but mm. the election commission says 95587 so hmm. just over right. four thousand short we right. don't know if the russian uh election commission is corrupt and is completely mm. in putin's pocket it may well be it may well be yeah i don't you know we, we can only speculate from here really um well but, they're more uh, than what on. used to be i mean i remember the cold war uh when the uh, entire bbc broadcasts were devoted to, to looking at the uh, lineup of the old men at the kremlin the 7th of november parade or whatever and the way that they were That's waving right. And who was waving most enthusiastically and who was standing next to whom so criminology as, right. as you well know because you're of that age was was an accepted uh, russian uh, studies topic uh, yes so, so no one assumed that no, there was one dictator but that it was a complicated relationship as there is in any society with elites and that's what i think we, we, we'd say putin 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 but there are many forces in russia who are both more liberal than he is and mo uh, far more forces that are hard line and who are trying to topple him from inside and you know so our our russia studies our, our, our approach towards studying russia has been so infantile and i rally rail against that as much yes. as anything yes absolutely you know, absolutely not and, and not just our studies of russia but frankly the whole uh approach at the moment to international relations is incredibly childish uh yeah, it seems that the default position is adversarial when the default position should be diplomacy and detente absolutely and i think we've lost uh, among thinking people in in the global south or the, what used to be the third world whatever i mean in, in india china turkey indonesia brazil we seem very they don't have any truck with our transgender stuff and our diplomacy and everything that you, they used to admire about the west has kind of gone down the tubes and i think yes. we're we're so you can be pro-western and which i'm sort of in a way i am and but uh, despair over the way we've conducted ourselves in recent years anyway um but well just to uh, go back to this nadation uh story yeah he is actually a former member of the state duma 
and he mm -hmm. intended to rise as an independent from the Civic Initiative Party, which has a right. staunch anti-war stance and openly mm. challenges Putin's policies, positioning right. him as the sole presidential hopeful willing to openly oppose the invasion of Ukraine. Now, he claims mm. that thousands lined up in cities across Russia and elsewhere in Europe since early last month to give their signatures in support of him, with volunteers collecting expat signatures in cities from London and Paris to Georgia's capital, Tbilisi. But the mm. campaign struck difficulties when the CEC working group claimed to have identified over 15% of the signatures were invalid in the paperwork mm. required to run for president, exceeding mm. the permissible 5% invalid. So, you know. Well, I mean, it could be that the, 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 the Western intelligence agencies manipulated that some. I won't exclude it. I'll, I'll kind of withhold judgment until the story comes out. And I'll, we'll try, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to the topic and we'll see if the media runs with it. Meanwhile, Basil, I guess you'll be watching the Tucker Carlson interview tonight. I certainly will. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. So we'll discuss that. Well, great. Well, thanks for the news headlines and, and uh, a bit of an insight there, Basil, our news producer. We will talk more tomorrow. This is TNT Radio. Thank you. A quick break now. Now, as we move into an election year in US politics at a time when the Western Empire is under attack from within, as if an orchestrated decline is the plan. Whilst at the same time, the rise of BRICS nations represents a rise of a new multipolar order. Institutions that have controlled the world are at last being questioned for their behavior and their failures. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the truth shall set us free. Those two statements sit at opposite ends of the zeitgeist in a world that is filled with death, destruction, deceit, and a wholesale unwillingness to hold anyone in power to account except for anyone who takes power against the ruling elite, of course. And then we have seen how that system works. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans. That's real. That's substantive. That's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Pella Neuroth-Taylor, live from Sweden, on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to my show on TNT Freedom Radio. We are Welcoming a guest here, George Samueli, who's a Hungarian uh, geopolitical expert who I've followed and admired for a long time, and he's been a regular TNT contributor for, for a while. And uh, your views on geopolitics are very insightful, I find. Um, I guess uh, we were just talking in the break about, uh, well, two things, the Nord Stream, and we were talking about the uh, the banning of the Russian candidate, peace candidate, and whether that will harm the upcoming Tucker Carlson interview, you know, whether he'll be seen as a useful idiot now that the Russians have shown how authoritarian and bad they are. And also maybe uh, you and I, as a, as a half Swedish guy and Hungarian guy, let's talk about Swedish-Hungarian relations for a bit. Yeah. And uh, if Orban, who is the number one hate figure in Sweden, <laughs> um, is going to, what he, what his plans to do with the Swedes and their NATO applications. So, but let's start off with the North Stream. 
Um, the, the Swedes have decided to close that issue down, Swedish authorities, and there's almost no coverage in the Swedish media about it. What have you? What is your take on that whole affair? Uh, do you think? Do you have any candidates for whom you might you think it might be? Well, I mean, the it's one of those cases where the most obvious candidate is almost certainly the uh, the culprit. Um, all of the indications, all of the evidence, all of the uh, events that led up to the destruction of the Nord Stream uh, pipelines point to the United States. You know, we remember uh, Biden's comment when um, uh, Chancellor Schultz was there, where the, you know, the White House, he said, we will end the Nord Stream pipeline. When he was asked to specify, he didn't specify, he just said, we will end it. We remember how the U.S. officials responded to the destruction of the pipelines when Victoria Newland gleefully said, we're very happy that Nord Stream is now just a bunch of uh, rusting uh, metal at the bottom of the sea. Remember um, what Anthony Blinken said that, well, this is great. This is a fantastic opportunity for Europe to wean itself off from uh, Russian uh, gas imports. So I don't think there's a great mystery there. Um, what I think most striking, and, and that comes out in the Sweden suddenly announcing, well, that's it, you know, uh, we're closing the investigation, is that none of them, Sweden, Germany, Denmark, not one of them has held a news conference to announce, well, what have you found? What, what, what What's the material? You've been investigating for 18 months. What have you got? Just just tell us that. Give us a briefing. But instead, they're saying, well, we're looking into it. It's a, it's a real mystery. We've got to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not an investigation. It's a cover-up. And and mm -hmm. that, Sweden just said, that's it. You know, we, we, we're done. And it's very hard to believe that after 18 months, mm -hmm. they're unable to get anywhere um, to find out who did it. It's not it, It's not something that you can just do just like that, you know, go mm -hmm. in for deep sea diving, um, you know, into, into uh, very, very deep, very cold, and take an uh, enormous quantity of explosives down and destroy something like uh, the pipelines. Very, very few candidates are able to do this. How has the Hungarian media been treating the whole Nord Stream issue? It, it's not something that's too much um, uh, on the, um, the Hungarian sort of uh, radar. I mean, they've got enough issues of, of their own. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the, the currently this... Uh, the dispute with uh, Sweden. There's also the issue of um, Hungary's objections to the uh, the 50 billion uh, euro uh, donation to Ukraine, which Hungary finally relented. So I think the Hungarians are generally quite preoccupied with their own um, issues. Uh, you know, they, 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 it's not something that they worry too much about. I mean, they're obviously um say we need our gas imports you know we we, we are still going to get our gas imports from russia and they've, they've been very uh meticulous about making sure that they sign their agreements uh with russia but as for Nord stream they just say hey that's that's the europeans problem it's the germans mm -hmm. problem they, they're kind of stuck with a policy that they wanted to pursue on the topic of gas actually what, 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 what are you in hungary right now or, or somewhere else i am, in I am yes i'm right now in budapest yeah Okay, love that city, by the way. Um, I was um, uh, 
Where, where do you get your gas from? Is it through pipelines from through Ukraine or from right. Turkey? It, and yeah, it, it goes through the yeah the 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 South Stream goes through uh, the uh, Turkey and then through uh, Bulgaria and uh, okay. yeah, it's a, so, so, so you don't get anything through Ukraine because I know there is a pipeline that's still active. I think there, there is some that goes through. Yeah, they, there is some that goes through Ukraine as well. Yeah, but I think and it's I rather think much... incredible. Russia and Ukraine are at war, yet Russia could still ship gas through Ukraine to customers. Very, it you is, know? very, very strange. <laughs> there are many strange aspects of this war, and that's certainly one of them. That this, this, the the gas still goes through Ukraine. Ukraine still gets paid for uh, allowing the transiting of uh, gas. Right. So yeah, very, very odd. Well, it reminds me incidentally that. In in World War II, uh, in central bankers or some banking officials were talking to each other from the Axis and Allied side throughout the war in Basel and in Zurich. Incredible. I, I mean, I've got to investigate that more, but before anyone holds me to account for it. Um, what is is the um, what's the media? I've, I've long wanted to talk to some Hungarians about this. I mean, I'm I'm very um, I positive to Orban's uh, foreign he's like the fly on the wall the common man in all these European councils and your foreign minister whose name I won't try to pronounce these sometimes yeah. used to be the only sane men in in Europe they say what I would say sort of thing you know and, and they want peace I mean I don't know some maybe there's some problems with Orban's aut autocratic domestic policies but as far as a statesman he seems to be one of the few statesmen in Europe or the world but what is um is there a vivid uh debate public opinion debate what do people on the streets say and what do the newspapers say are they bashing Orban all the time or they're pretty supportive of this real realistic foreign policy well that's a very good question I mean Hungary you know in common with most countries um uh, enjoys really kind of a division between um what the um <clears throat> the intelligentsia the kind of social uh <clears throat> liberal uh types who live in Budapest uh, say, um, and what the rest of the country say. So if you come to Budapest, you'll find that almost everybody hates Orban. You know, much as mm. you know, during the Trump years, you go to New York, everybody hates Trump. Um, mm. uh, you know, even in, in Russia, you go to Moscow, a lot of people hate Putin in, in Moscow. Right, yeah. Go to the rest of the country, you have a very different attitude. And that, that was even reflected in the election last mm. year, where Orban carried everything outside Budapest, but carried nothing in Budapest. So um the the but he, in terms of his foreign policy i think he does enjoy widespread support they don't like his domestic policies particularly policy right. on taxation right. which is quite complicated okay. because hungary has a very complicated yeah, yeah, yeah. system we'll, we'll just carry um, on after the headlines uh okay. george uh this is TNT Radio. Quick uh, run through the day. What a news day this is turning out to be. Wait, 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 wait till you hear this. Now, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Tucker Carlson's highly anticipated interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin will be released for the world to watch at 6pm Thursday, Eastern Time. The world's number one podcaster has taken aim at the mainstream press for ignoring the frightening rise in excess deaths. Forget global boiling, the UN chief says we're now entering the age of chaos, and the US military claims to have killed a high-value target in the Middle East. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. 
for the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations. Vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Hi, welcome back to the uh, Pelinero's Taylor Show on TNT. We've got George Samueli from Budapest with us, who's a long-standing contributor to TNT and a geopolitical expert and a very insightful critic of all things political and European. And I also have a lot of sympathy for the, the Hungarian stance on a lot of things. Um, but uh, let's stick to foreign policy for the moment. We might get onto the uh, domestic agenda. Uh, actually, maybe we'll do a quick... Uh, tour around the domestic agenda because we've got a bit of time now um i was reading um i went to hungary about three times in the last few years um just to see if it was the the sort of totalitarian hellhole that the swedes maintain and i know quite a lot of swedes go there and partly to just irritate the bien pensant the liberals of sweden who are just like the hungarian counterparts but I found it, I mean, for a start, it's a, it's a country which seems fine to me, you know, and lovely Budapest uh, seems a really perfect European metropolis. And what was striking, it's always very, when your first few, first day or something is always very interesting because you say, what am I used to and what am I seeing now? What struck me about Hungary was that, um, well, the, there are a lot of young women, girls, you know, 17, 18, 19, walking in ones and twos uh, out in the evening. And then uh, I saw some sitting on the on the keys of the Danube, drinking beer and wine. And I thought, well, this is something I react to in a sort of interested way. Why do I notice that? Well, I guess I notice it because you don't see that so often in, in, in Sweden anymore. So, I mean, that's like, um, have you had those thoughts? I mean, when you go uh, travel around Europe? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, a, that's you're absolutely um, right that Budapest is, is unique among european cities in that people wander around um at night without any concern and and i you know i often ex express concern when i'm with someone saying well you sure you'll be all right you know you're going to walk home oh yeah, yeah you know don't, don't worry about mm -hmm. anything um and and that that's no question and, and i think it's and, and it's if for a country that's supposedly quite conservative um you know hungarian women are often quite you know dressed in a very non-conservative ways shall we say um so but it but that is absolutely the, the case that um there's a great deal of uh uh personal uh safety um and 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 that you know that is distinctive i mean hungary has made it a point very much unlike sweden that we are not an immigrant country and we're not we're just not going to have them we know we, this is not who we are um you know we're an ancient uh christian people in Europe, I mean, we want to keep it that way, you know, with this, we have our own, uh, you know, obviously our own uh, unique history, our own unique language, and mm -hmm. we are a Christian people. This is very much something that uh, Orban emphasizes. And so we, we just don't want um, an influx of non-Christians uh, from the rest mm -hmm. of the world. And I think that that I think has given Hungarians a, 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 a great sense of uh, personal safety. And I guess you feel is that a com there's a common mandate for that. I mean, how about the the, the liberals and, and and leftists in 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 Budapest? Do they hate that as well? I mean, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's like they 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 have 
um, many of the same rather fashionable views about um, immigration um, that fashionable people in uh, in in Europe and the United States have. I mean, what has to kind of remember that the Orban wins elections by landslides. You know, a landslide is say 55-45. That's a landslide. Mm. You know, 10-point spread, you get a big majority. That's true anywhere. But that does mm. mean that about 45% of the country is against you. So, yeah, mm. so there, there's obviously people who don't agree with it and who want to be like the rest of Europe. They want to have the same kind of fashionable liberal uh, views, you know, the usual kind of secularism, globalism, and, and the rest that you would find, you know, going to Germany or uh, France or anywhere. Um, but, you know, Orban has pulled off, you know, something quite remarkable. He's now had four landslide uh, wins, and there's really no one on the political scene who, right. who's any, in any position to challenge him. I mean, I don't think anyone really doubts that uh, 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 given his, you know if his health holds up, that he'll he'll be re-elected next time. Okay, I mean it's interesting because I I think um, Sweden has been committed to to multiculturalism for a long time. Maybe it was one of the first countries. I've I've often wondered whether Sweden is deliberately being used by its oligarchs who are very closely tied to the U.S. as a kind of experiment for the rest of Europe because the Swedes are quite adaptable and a bit politically naive. But also, I mean, it's it's. I don't know. Don't ask me about Sweden, but um, it's interesting that Finland, which was a, a quite a, a mono-ethnic country until quite recently, and uh, and sort of had this Sisu combative mentality, a bit of a siege mentality because of the old uh, hostility to Russia, but but also, I mean, they had to have a realistic relationship with Russia. Uh, but they've suddenly kind of got drunk the multicultural Kool Aid, uh, in part thanks to the Swedish liberal because they're Swedish speakers who perform about five percent of the population, and they're an old liberal elite, as it were, who control newspapers and business. And they've always, they've advocated uh, multiculturalism for Finland. And now Finland is becoming slowly another country. And that coincides, I don't know if it's a coincidence, with the absolutely passionate anti-Russianism, which was dormant, I guess, but which is now harming Finland, I think. Anyway, and Ireland, apparently, I haven't been to Ireland for, for 20 years, but when I went to Ireland younger, it was a sort of, like England was in the 1950s, and now it's not anymore. I mean, they have... Uh, they're becoming uh, much more multiracial, but you think that Hungary will be able to sort of withstand the the global globalism, or is Orbán going to have to give way to the EU or, or American? You've got the American. I'll just take a quick joke. Why are there no coups in Washington? Because there's no American embassy in in Washington. Yeah, so you know you've got the Americans uh, leaning on you to to change. Uh, what's going to happen? Will will you be able to withstand the multicultural drive? Well, that's a, that's very interesting because <clears throat> I, I really do think that so much depends on one individual um, because I think he himself, I think Orban will resist multiculturalism. He doesn't always resist NATO or the EU because Hungary is just one small country and you've got 26 EU countries aligned against you and then in NATO you've got 30 countries aligned against you. I mean, there's a limit to what a country of 10 million can do to resist. So, you know, Orban objects, you know, and, and is a, is difficult, but eventually he has to cave. But I don't think he's going to cave on the multicultural issue. I don't think he's going to cave on the uh, immigration issue. However, what happens after Orban, that's that's anybody's guess. And I, I and I, <clears throat> I, I don't have any great faith that the person who comes after him 
will be like him. I mean, I think, you know, often a lot depends on just this one individual. Mm. And 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 then the, uh, you know, whoever comes after him is just going to make a complete, um, uh, you know, hash of this. I mean, I, I you know, you often find this in, in countries where you have a great leader um, who has a vision and so on, but that he, he doesn't necessarily have the mm. talent to groom a successor. And so when when he departs right. on the scene, you know his successor kind of mm. you know bu bungles things. I mean, for instance, mm. he's very pragmatic. Well, sorry, we'll, we'll carry on talking after the break, uh, George. Okay. Okay. Quick break here from TNT Radio. Thank you. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. What a quinky dink! Nikki Haley had a record fundraising month in January. January ended last Wednesday, and last Wednesday was the day that Nikki was in Miami Beach meeting with a Democrat billionaire mega donor. Yeah, I'm sure those three things had nothing to do with each other. Right. Tell you something else that has nothing to do with anything, and that's Democrat politicians with R's after their name, like Nikki, like Chris Christie, like Lindsey Graham, like Mitt Romney, like Liz Cheney, Adam Kinziger, you know the type and Republican values. And yet all of them claim that they are in politics to preserve and uphold Republican values. Now, if you want genuine Republican values, you've got to look at Donald Trump at the America First Agenda. You've got to look at what make America great again really means. It means a rising tide lifts all boats. It means prosperity for regular workaday people, not just elites whose values are more in line with Davos than with those in the Dakotas. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. We are for pets. We do anything for them because they do everything for us. We are for people, for those who love pets unconditionally. We are for good, from adoptions and veterinary care to disaster relief and fighting pet hunger, we stand together to create a better world for pets and families in need. We are PetSmart Charities. For pets, for people, for good. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state. Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to my show, Neroth Taylor on TNT Freedom Radio. We've got George Samueli with us from Budapest talking about Hungarian issues and Orban's uh, resistance, a sort of European Trump figure. Um, well, we've got time for one or two quick questions before we've got our next guest. Uh, George, this um, I wanted to know from an inside or a close student of Hungary, I mean, um, Orban has made himself popular in Hungary and, and hated by the international business and political elites for his nationalization policies of, of uh, Hungarian firms. Has that worked out? Has it been good for the Hungarian people and increased your GDP or prosperity? We have to give quite quick answers here. Yes, I, I, th I think it's been uh, successful. Um, Hungary obviously is not as uh, prosperous as um, many countries of Europe, but I think it's what's important, and I think this is where he, he was very shrewd, that um, by nationalizing uh, industries and above all by bringing uh, you know, finance in Hungary under the control of Hungarian banks, Hungarian fi financiers, he mm. has made himself relatively invulnerable to pressure. I mean, he obviously anticipated um, 
uh, pressure from the EU. I mean, we had that article in the Financial Times last week that said the EU is planning to make the Hungarian economy scream. Um, mm. And I think Orban almost from the beginning has pursued this policy of gradually taking uh, control of things that were that were uh, under European control, under Hungarian controls. In other words, it's hung rich Hungarians, Hungarian financiers, Hungarian bankers who are uh, key to the Hungarian economy, not the Europeans. Otherwise, you know, they really would be able to make the Hungarian economy scream. Hmm. Okay, and uh, finally, before we go to our next guest, Sweden and Hungary, this old these frenemies. <laughs> um, where does uh, Orban is a always was a hate figure for the liberal Swedes. And, and now he's even more of a hate figure because he's the, the last obstacle to Sweden joining its beloved NATO organization and having lots of American troops on its soil and confronting Russia. What do you think is going to happen? And tell us what the state of uh, the Orban mentality is on this issue and of the Hungarian politicians and media. Well, the uh, Fides, which Orban controls that political party, um, it has said, well, we're not really in any particular rush to get Sweden in. I mean, we will eventually um, agree to Sweden uh, joining, but we're not in any particular rush. So again, we've had all this pressure that being applied by NATO, by the United States. Uh, you know, Hungary had better get with the program. But Hungary is really, you know, they're, they're you know, stubborn people. They don't really like being told you've got to do this and you have to do it now. You have to do it immediately. And I think, well, okay, hey, that's kind of what we try to get away from when we were part of the Soviet bloc and now they got the uh, EU bloc. I imagine at some point they will, uh, uh, you know, lift their uh, objection. But at the moment, Sweden is behaving so insolently towards Hungary. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the the Swedish prime minister, you know, who, who, you know, Orban said, well, you come to come visit us in Budapest, we'll sit down mm. around the table, we'll agree to um, uh, discuss matters that uh, mm. cause friction between us, and then we'll lift mm. the, our, um, our, you know, and then, and then we'll uh, get get with the ratification program. And the Swedish Prime Minister said, no, I'm not coming to Budapest until you have signed on and have ratified our membership. Well, that's right. kind of rather insulting. I mean, because I'm getting people, who mm -hmm. are you to tell mm -hmm. us what we need to do? And I mean, what, what the sequence of our actions. So I think he's, uh, you know, Sweden feels mm -hmm. that, hey, the, we've got the wind in our backs. We've got NATO behind us. We've got the Americans behind us. We can afford mm -hmm. to tell the Hungarians where they where they get off. And the Hungarians are a little pissed off by this. You know, they're thinking, well, right, sure, yeah. we might take this crap from Germany. We're not going to take it from Sweden. Exactly. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, let's well follow the story closely. As I said, I was always quite favorably disposed to Hungary. Anyway, anyone who stands up against power has got my support in a hearing. But and I remember, I despise mainstream media and I particularly despise Swedish corporate media. And almost to man or woman, they were using Hungary as their chief punch bag, and, and Russia, of course, but Hungary especially. And uh, it wasn't accompanied with any insight. It was just the usual propagandistic cliches about being anti-gay and uh, um, Orban being a tyrant and so on. And now they're saying this tyrant is banning. Uh, now they're kind of begging and whining the same journalists. And I, I sort of feel a, a great sense of schadenfreude. But these journalists are not recanting in any way. I mean, the, the debate is still carrying on in its old usual ruts of disliking uh, Orban. 
Anyway, George, thank you very much for that view from Hungary. And we will now go to our next guest, uh, Jason Nelson, who is a uh, food producer from the United States who has specialized in freeze-dried meat. Is that right, Jason? So tell us about your business, because it sounds like a really interesting uh, sort of door to the future of the way we consume food and especially meat. Tell us about it. I think you just hit the nail on the head, actually. Um, I think what we're talking about when we talk about freeze-dried food in today's terms is the advances in, in freeze-dried technology that have happened over the last 20, of year, 20 years have really opened up the opportunity to be able to stabilize food markets around the world and not only that food supply. Uh, as you're aware, and, and much of your audience is aware, throughout our history, whenever you've had uh, great leaps in technology like refrigeration and, and freezing, uh, but you could go back further, salt, correct? Just the ability to mm -hmm. salt meat and be able to carry it forward changes the diet. You change the diet, uh, you change the ability of, of a civilization to be able to settle effectively, to be able to grow. So when I think of freeze-dried food and why I even entered the industries after I left the Army working in civil affairs and psychological operations, the whole idea was to find complex problems and create simple solutions. And wow. for me, the simple solution is stabilizing food prices and maintaining food supply chains, especially in times of uh, kinetic activity. You know, you go everything from the lockdowns on down to the war happening in Ukraine. And the idea of shelf-stable food that can last... 10 to 25 years that is not only um, quality food when it starts, but quality food when you rehydrate it, it's just, you know, I, as I call mm -hmm. it, survival versus survival. But I think there was a, there's a paradigm shift going on right now. And I think the need is there. And I think there's an opportunity here to sort of shift the conversation instead of talking about mm -hmm. limiting food production and making people eat bugs, that maybe mm -hmm. instead we can take advantage of when we have uh, uh, higher gross yields during a year, being able to set that mm -hmm. food aside and also take advantage of the, the weight reduction, the 75% mm -hmm. weight reduction, and start moving this food around the world to places where it's needed. Right. So let, let me just bring it down to the level of the kitchen. What? Because I, I wasn't familiar. I'm, I'm a meat eater because I'm on the keto diet. I had diabetes, which I cured by eating meat only. So I'm, I'll be ordering your stuff in bulk. You know, um, it's that you know normally you buy your steak in the supermarket and you either stick it in the freezer or you buy it frozen or you stick it in the fridge and you know it'll have a shelf life of a few days. But what you're offering is a kind of a, a ziploc or a sort of quite a light uh container i mean as you said it's it lot but the freeze the, the the meat has had its moisture and humidity removed from it and you can carry that stuff around because that water is 75 percent of of the weight of meat and then when you want to have that fancy steak you can be out hiking or you can be in a war zone or whatever you open the the, the this this freeze-dried thing and you you rehydrate you put it in a, a bowl of water your steak, and you can then fry a fantastic steak without having had it in the fridge. Is that right? I mean, really concretely. The, the, uh, so it's a little bit uh, different. We haven't gotten to full steaks yet because it's uh, extremely right. difficult to do. But 
So when we first look at it, if you if people are com- uh, familiar with survival food, I'll use that word. But you know, I had to serve twenty years and used to MREs and other things like that. But I've done a lot of rehydrating of food. I think what people right. are used to is this idea of well, you have oatmeal, you have cheesy rice. Um, one of my favorites is like these taco flavored beef crumbles or something like that. Right. I I've now okay. slaughtered over a thousand cows for our company. I I don't know what a beef crumble is. It's nowhere on a cow. So we wanted right. to shift right. more than just the idea of of supply chain, but all also the types of meat that you're getting. So for us, we separate, we take a cow, we have it, um, it's our cows bought them two years ago that they'd sit on our fields. And when they're hand slaughtered, they're also hand carved. So you're not getting little crumbles of meat, you're getting hand carved meat. But on top of the beef you're getting that's hand carved, we separated into tenderloin. We separated uh, the New York strip, the ribeye. And then the rest of it, which we call our original steak, is actually sirloin, you know, tri-tip, um, uh, brisket, uh, picanha, all of the things that you would love. Again, it just wasn't done before. And the reason we think it wasn't done before is, is, is that it was too hard, if you will. But it's just, it's not that hard to do. And and it just takes mm-hmm. a lot of effort to be able to do it. And we, we do a neat process where we sous vide it. That's how we cook mm-hmm. it. So we sous vide it and it uh, maintains all the moisture. But the only ingredient in the entire product is beef. Right. So... It's much lighter than than the, the, if it were fresh, and it's it can last for twenty five years or something. Is that right? Absolutely. So yeah, it's it's twenty. I mean, it it weighs a fraction of what it would weigh. So we uh, send out 48, 48 ounces of steak becomes twelve ounces in a bag, and it's you no, know, it's a good sized bag, but it's a bag that you can store uh, easily in a closet, and it's twelve portions, twelve adult portions of of just pure beef because you can't freeze dry fat, so it's just pure beef that people can have set aside. And 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 again, whether you're going camping or or if you're thinking about longer term survival, it's just a different type of product. But I think you're going to see that mm. shift in the industry. Again, as as the process has changed and as the machines have changed and as the it's the technologies become more accessible because it solves a lot of problems around the world because we've now proven that even the water is hard to get in general, where now you can put water anywhere in the world. You can get water, you can clean water, you can make it drinkable or at least potable. And when you can do that, that changes the dynamic on what kind of food you can also provide to people. And when we do that, we just want to make sure, like you mentioned the supermarket, the type of food you go to get. I got to tell you, most of the food you're getting in your supermarket is not the quality of beef that you think it is. I know how beef is is sold. I know how it's processed. Um, Mm -hmm. I know they go through mass processors. I know that the, again, the quality that you're getting is not what you think it is. The injections, the hormones, the things they put in that. Yeah. And and, And yours is injection-free, presumably. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Not only is our company Matra, I left them. I left the military at 19 and a half years because I refused to take the mRNA jab. So I'm not going to let them put anything inside my food. Wow. Just to just go back to the uh, the thing, interesting, fun thing about talking about food as opposed to, let's say, geopolitics is it's incredibly concrete in the way that everyone eats and everyone. So everyone will be interested in these topics, you know. Uh, and you're saying, I mean, I'm, I'm anti anti jab. So but I'm not that uh, well up, well informed about it, so I'm, I won't go into detail on that particularly. But just this, so you can export this stuff around the world because it's quite easy to freight around, is what you're saying. And then you add water locally, and that can be an extra food source for people in all over the world, basically, even in poor countries. 
that that's the goal so it's not just so right now it's domestic uh we've already started the process of being able to ship internationally we do humanitarian work that we can sort of skirt the regulations on but when it comes to selling it but in the end the idea is as we scale up this has great scalability and the price continues to drop the higher we're able to mm. scale up and the idea is to reach a price point in which you are capturing food when it's at its low prices freeze drying it and then add when when you have shortages when you have prices go up like we do we have a, a war going on in ukraine that's crushing the bread basket which in turn crushes the feed market which in turn lowers the amount of beef available right so when you mm -hmm. reach that slow in the market what you want to be able to say is is that rather than those areas that now becomes unaffordable for them to get those necessary animal proteins we've already locked in those animals before at the lower prices mm -hmm. and freeze dried it and it's available and again it's a quality product so you're not talking about sending out um the directs to everyone to eat you're talking mm -hmm. about sending out the same quality product you would have sent them during the uh, bumper years so tell us it's interesting you you left the army and you are now a an entrepreneur or food producer whatever what was what did you learn from the army and what you're doing now how are those skills relevant you know you were the first person in over a hundred interviews to ask me that and mm -hmm. usually people just preface it by saying when people leave the military they're known for being hardworking, industrious for uh long hours and and overcoming adversity right um, and, and that tenacity, it does play a part, right, to work through and slog through those hours. And, and if you've ever started a small business, people do understand as you move it to a medium and larger business, just the amount of hours. But I think that the greatest strength, I mean, we could talk about the training in civil affairs and understanding how to analyze problems and create simple solutions. But really what it comes down to is adaptability. One of the things that I think is not given a lot of credit to, to military members, especially those who've reached senior NCO uh, leadership staff and NCO leadership officers, is that you have to be able to adapt. Uh, you have to be able to overcome unique uh, situations. You have to be able to create unique uh, solutions that work. You have to have a measurable solution. And military veterans are usually very good at thinking on their feet. And I, I know that a lot of problems that we came across when we were developing this process, just the, uh, the one thing that I was always taught was there was always a solution. You just have to go mm -hmm. and find the solution. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I've been able to bring forward. My, my brother in arms is also one of my partners in this company. Between the two of us, I know that uh, that military, that version of of having no choice but to accomplish a mission and therefore having to adapt and and overcome any obstacles are some of the strengths that we've brought forward. And I love seeing other military veterans go forth and do that in the business world because I don't think it's given enough credit. Well, I, I mean, I come from an extremely uh, non-militaristic background, although my dad was a paratrooper back in the 1950s, but I haven't, I oh, didn't wow. even go through the army because uh, in England you didn't do national service. Uh, but um, what, um, my sort of my what i just read in the media or watching hollywood films as a veteran sometimes have problems adapted in, in adapting in civvy street because it's a different way of life and you know they feel the lack of uh, structure in their lives i guess do you, is that something that you've come across and that you because you've if that's a problem then you've surmounted that you've solved that by coming throwing away yourself into this really interesting job is there a big problem with veterans psychologically in, in the states and elsewhere 
You know, when we leave, I think you know, some people leave at different states of their service, obviously, right? So some people leave it after four years, after eight years. Our contracts are usually four-year lengths, but eight years is the first initial minimum. But I think that it depends on what you've done in your life and what you've gotten used to and the, and the family social structure that you have around you. But I think the largest adaptability problem is understanding um, <clears throat> if you were one of my employees, a vendor or anything of that nature when i say to you can you get this job done and will you get it done by this time in the military you don't get an option when somebody says have this done by this time and it has to be done this way you roger that it will get done there is no option and in the civilian world there seems to be an option it seems to be pacing and 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 results can often vary and I think there's a lot of frustration when it comes to that adaptability for veterans. Um, right. I, I think as far as that, but you know, the thing is, is that we just work hard to overcome that. And, and it's, because it's been an adventure. Jason Nelson, thank you very much. We'd love to discuss these things further another time, but good luck with your uh, product. And thank you very much. This is TNT Radio.